Um, I, I invited you back because I recently interviewed Michael Albert, an American political critic, uh, the publisher of South End Press and one of the founders of Z Magazine, which for me was uh, like set the limit for the American left thought uh, when I was getting out of high school and in college in the 90s. Um, he is also a good friend of Noam Chomsky's former publisher. And uh, Chomsky, as you know, has been publicly dismissive of you and your work. Um, so anyhow, during our conversation with Michael Albert, my conversation with Michael Albert, I told him that not only did I consider myself to be some sort of Marxist, but even worse, I was kind of a fan of your work. Um, and while Michael was very kind to me about my errors, he was also dismissive uh, of your work in a way that I didn't think was fair. So um, I invited you and I invited him onto this channel to talk mm-hmm. about critical theory and to make an, in an effort to kind of explain what issues um, you could cover and what you can contribute to the struggle for socialism. Um, but unfortunately he turned down uh, the invitation uh, uh, d- despite the fact that I, I made several efforts to explain what we would be discussing. He, he felt mm-hmm. that he, didn't, he didn't understand it well enough to contribute. So as we do talk to each other, I kind of am going to keep Michael and Noam Chomsky in the back of my mind. And uh, in a way, this whole interview is aimed at both of them to try to, to communicate to them what issues are at stake uh, in your work and, and what it, they're overlooking as they kind of fail to take in and, and understand. Uh, from, from my here. standpoint, it's said that they cannot reply. Yeah. No? Yeah. 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 But, well, I mean, perhaps after this, we could do this again in a few months or a year or whatever, and they will reply. Or maybe I could get Chomsky himself to come on and, and talk to you. That's That would be... Yeah, it's uh, when, uh, when, when uh, I know, it's like, uh, it's evil, but not against anybody, just an idea. Yeah, this will happen when uh, Donald Trump will join uh, AOC and the left-wing <laughs> Democrats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> I wanted to start by just reading the question that I would have posed to Michael if he had shown up. Um, yeah. And here it is. Uh, Noam Chomsky. Is Sorry, I cannot uh, abstain from giving you. And I will give you an answer if, as if I am myself. <laughs> I will pretend to be myself. Okay. Well, that's, that's good because uh, I'm pretending to be me right now. So um, Noam Chomsky has criticized Zizek for spouting nonsense and or truisms. Given that Chomsky himself has said that we do not have a theory of the physical and that he claims that the word real is merely an honorific term, and that he also claims that his politics are based on truisms and are common sense, uh, which is a category that he abandons when he's doing his real work, wherein he tries to figure out how the world works, do you think it's fair to charge people in the continental tradition uh, people like Zizek, uh, with playing games with words or trying to obscure what would otherwise be seen as nonsense or empty concepts and or mere truisms. And that was my question for Albert. Here's my question for you. What do you think is the nature of the gap or the block that keeps Chomsky, uh, Albert, and others like him in that tradition, maybe we th- throw in Nathan Robinson, uh, uh, t- from understanding you uh, and and your arguments and assertions? No, I have just a couple of points. I will improvise a little bit around this. I think that this idea that it's simply analytic tradition against uh, so-called continental tradition is maybe a little bit misleading because, you know, uh, as we all know, the interesting things that goes on already for decades in so-called analytic tradition is very serious attempts to combine it with so-called continental tradition. Now we have a whole series of philosophers, exemplary case would have been uh, uh, Robert Brandom, who try to read Hegel from a standpoint which is, if not analytical, at least deeply indebted to analytical, analytic thoughts. 
Then we have all the others uh, uh, who are, I will not now bore you with the names, who are trying to do exactly this, like Richard Rorty. Okay, he was never a pure analytic philosopher. But nonetheless, he ended up with a positive approach to Hegel. Okay, it's a specific reading, Hegel as a cultural historicist and so on. I just find it strange that uh, precisely when the trend of the world spirit, however you put it, you know, and I must repeat, maybe you know it, a, tech, uh, a note which I find very nice from my last text, I think I published it in Philosophical Salon, or where, you know, this Hegel's famous remark, when in 1808, I think, he saw Napoleon riding through Jena after the Battle of Jena, where Napoleon defeated Arsenal and so on. Others, uh, he, Napoleon, uh, sorry, Hegel was so fascinating, he said, it's as if I see Weltgeist, the world spirit, riding on a horse triumphantly. And the point is that world spirit was was in the uh, inauguration in the figure of Bernie Sanders, you know. Hmm. You know, the famous photo, he there alone, sitting and so on. The world spirit was there at a distance. Hmm. So uh, uh, literally the world spirit. He was the standpoint of how he presented the standpoint literally of world spirit. By this I mean if you analyze global situation, how should we look upon the inauguration, not with the usual liberal relief and so on and so on. So let me go back to your questions. I isolated a couple of points there. Let me go systematically through them. I think they are important. First, uh, this may surprise you or whomever, I think you drew my attention to it, but to that part, I didn't know it. I admit it. It's from an interview a couple of years old of Chomsky and materialism. You know, how uh, matter, he says philosophically very correctly that already with Newton, the father of, okay, with Galileo, who was earlier, the father of modern uh, physics and so on, uh, already with Newton, yes, there is matter, but there is energy whose status is not clear, like matter, in a way, disappeared, you cannot specify it. Uh, first thing I would say here is that uh, uh, this certainly is not a commonsensical view. You know, This is an <laughs> paradoxical view that uh, every Hegelian partisan of European idealism would love. Right. You know, this is certainly not common sense. And this is how I understand materialism. My answer to that reproach is that uh, how matter is elusive and so on. Now I'm speaking, I try to be simple, as simple as possible, but I mean it seriously. It's that uh, we have to leave behind this traditional notion of matter, which is to simplify it to the utmost, empty space in which some little particles are jumping around, you know, little pieces of matter. It's not that. I take the lesson of relativity theory, quantum physics, and so on and so on. I like all this, although I must afraid I don't understand them in their all their immanent scientific dimensions. But this idea that if you look for matter in these small pieces that are really out there jumping around, it's not that. I accept all these paradoxes that, that uh, matter can be dissolved into pure oscillations or uh, uh, variations into a, into a curved space or whatever. Even my good friend, German, colleague of mine, Frank Ruda, called, I think, the term materialism without matter. You know, what matters is not that you find some pieces of hard stuff which are really there. What is the basic thing is that a process is 
contingent, not in the sense that it doesn't obey necessities, but contingent in the sense that there is no deep reason or cause or spiritual motive or goal controlling it. In this sense, contingent. What do I mean by this? To explain it again, I'm sorry if I go too much into naive philosophy. Let's say that a comet hits the Earth and destroys life. Of course, it will not be a contingent element in the sense of, oh, this violated the laws of nature. No, if we saw this, if we will see in advance this comet or whatever, we will be able to predict probably up to a second when it will hit the Earth and so on. But it's contingent in the sense that (coughs) from our human standpoint, it's totally meaningless. It just happened. This is for me materialism. Because New Agers and theological idealists would immediately try, try to read meaning into it. Is it a sign of divine wrath? Did we exploit nature too much? Nature is taking revenge and so on and so on. Which is why, for me, the pandemic now, COVID, is pure materialism. Because, again, of course we should analyze it, how it was also conditioned with other uh, uh, not non-physical, not just biological or chemical social processes. It's clear that without our economy, global communication, and so on, COVID would be a phenomenon limited to some small province in China, probably China or whatever. But why I'm saying that only this is, for me, materialism. This, not so much contingency as meaninglessness, to accept the basic meaninglessness of it. In this sense, I think that, although not explicitly, but... uh, Implicitly, even most of the traditional Marxists, especially Stalinists, are not really materialists. Although they wouldn't, they would never say it, their silent presupposition is that there is a kind of deeper necessity of progress in history. And again, although they wouldn't say it, they implicitly claim that uh, nature is here to serve us. Basically, nature is matter out there being disponible to us. It's basically out there so that we it offers itself for us to manipulate it, exploit it, and so on and so on. Again, this is for me the notion of uh, materialism. Uh, so here okay. I would agree with what Chomsky writes uh-huh. in some text I forgot where. I would just say that, no, this is not my notion of uh, materialism. Sorry, just I will finish immediately. Then the second point that you mentioned is, uh, uh, apart is, uh, is, uh, 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 socialism and all that, you know. But I, I don't, think that Chomsky would even have uh, agreed to designate himself as a socialist. Isn't he more a kind of anarchic democrat, if you may put it like this? Mm, Does he say anywhere, maybe I haven't read him enough, I know, and he's up to a point right, but I don't think it's as simple as Chomsky claims, I know that he's very critical of Bolsheviks and of October Revolution. Yes. I think at a deeper level, again, I'm not criticizing him here, I don't think he would define himself as a Marxist even. No, he would not. This is no. not a critical point. And that's the enigma I have with him. Where does he stand, Chomsky, positively in politics? He's, a, he's an anarcho-syndicalist. How far does the success of uh, libertarian socialism or anarchism as a way of life really depend on a fundamental change in the nature uh, of man, both in his motivation, his altruism, and also in his knowledge and sophistication? I think it not only depends on it, but in fact, the whole purpose of libertarian socialism is that it will contribute to it. Uh, It will contribute to a spiritual transformation. 
precisely that kind of great transformation in uh, in the way humans conceive of themselves and their uh, ability to act, to decide, to create, to produce, to inquire, precisely that spiritual transformation that uh, social thinkers from the left Marxist tradition, from Luxembourg, say, on over through anarcho-syndicalists have always emphasized. So on the one hand, it requires that spiritual transformation. On the other hand, the, its purpose is to create institutions which will contribute to that transformation. Well, he would fit into the first international before the split. Would he? Yeah. I think Marx and Bakunin. He would be on the Bakunin, Prodonist side of the first international, I, I think. And I think he would be an anarchist um, in theory. I mean, in practice. Uh, yeah, but with all my criticism of Marx, you know what's my other problem here? Marx saw something very clearly and intelligently. His Marxist reproach to Bakunin is not just that he is an anarchist, but that he is preaching anarchism while in organizational matter he was very centralized and authoritarian even, you know, that anarchists God save you when anarchists take power. You know what they are ready to do in a very authoritarian way. The separate, this is, I think, uh, Marxist basic view that anarchy and authority, and I'm not saying now, Chomsky or whoever don't see it, that anarchy and authoritarian or uh, oppressive social space are not opposed. Look, if there ever was an anarchic system, it's capitalism, insofar as it remains liberal. You say, let's leave it to the market, through chaos, there is an invisible hand which somehow controls the chaos and a good result will emerge. But isn't, like, isn't nonetheless, in this sense, the silent presupposition of every anarchism, I think at least a certain order which has to be here so that your anarchism can thrive. So, for example, it's a very primitive point. Now, I am common sense, you know, but I always, when I debate with anarchists, I always ask them, okay, today the world is one. We have ecological problem, energy, education, science. Don't you need some kind of a universal, not so much authority as public order, which must be well regulated so that you can thrive in your anarchy? I always also reproach those Anarchists, I would call them pre-representational communitarian anarchists, who see the ideal in these small self-regulating communities, you know, pre-representative democracy. People come together, debate in their small community all the points, uh, how to organize education, health, and so on and so on. But again, I'm saying so many things have to be there. Probably electricity supply, uh, science, and so on. Water, like every of these small anarchic communities, presuppose a well-shaped universal place, and that's what really interests me. Um, Michael Albert, who's Chomsky's friend, who might have been here, is the uh, author of a book called Pericon. Uh, or part on participatory economics. And he has worked out a, a fairly yeah. elaborate system of what it would take to replace capitalism through democratic particip participation. Um, uh, and mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things that I find most interesting about him is He would that, have answered, yes. Yeah, he could have answered that question. And what what you're asking, I think, can be like taken to another level where you start to ask, OK, what is your theory of money? Because he would keep money in his participatory economic system. Um, uh, what do you uh, what about what is the basis of class? Is it really about um, 
prestige or decision making, or does it have to do with uh, what Marx would call exploitation, um, and and so on? So one of the difficulties I had when I interviewed him was getting my perspective, which was a Marxist perspective, into terms that he could take on without basically feeling like he had an allergic reaction. Here again, I would try to change the terrain because my Hegelian, whatever you call it, critical point is, I must emphasize this, my Hegelian critical point is not that I have my own vision of future and so on. I, uh, I, what I see Hegel as is the philosopher whose motto is, as we all know from the uh, preface to philosophy, his philosophy of right, philosophy always comes too late. It just paints gray on gray. You know, I endlessly repeat all this stuff. So uh, uh, as a Hegelian, I am not proposing a new structure of future society. I think that where is Hegel at his best? When he describes a certain order, social order, philosophical order, whatever, ethical order, and brings out how imminently it destroys itself, how its inner antagonisms explode, and so on, and so on. And Hegel saw this coming even for his own system. He saw very well, you know, it's interesting to look into this. The last Hegel's published text, as you probably know, is his quite violent, strange reaction to so-called English Reform Bill, well, 1831, I don't know, where they uh, extended a little bit voting, electoral voting, bringing it almost, not quite, of course, to universal vote. And Hegel was for corporate voting, you participate in state affairs, not immediately as a single citizen, but only through uh, corporation, state, and for him, this was uh, horror. I don't think his criticism should be taken for us today, because democracy in some sense, whatever it meant, did work. But what I'm saying is that Hegel saw his world that he describes in his philosophy of right coming to an end. And Hegel strictly prohibited any visions of the future. So me as a Hegelian, far from advocating some new communism and having a formula of it, I'm a pessimist here. And maybe I'm not so far from Chomsky here, because also I see this in him. I just look at what is proposed by partisans of this, of that, and try to guess in advance how things, in some imminent sense, necessarily will go wrong. So I think Hegel would have been, uh, uh, would have felt, how to say, stupid proverb, like fish in the water with 20th century history. You know, it's all Hegelian. You have this big progress of peace in the, for us, Europeans, not elsewhere. Colonization was very brutal. In Western Europe and United States, where does it culminate in the Great War? First World War, a nightmare. You know, you have October Revolution, an explosive emancipatory event. Where does it end up in Stalinism and so on and so on? Hegel would have really felt like a fish in a fresh water analyzing all these uh, reversals. This, for me, doesn't mean that, uh, <coughs> that, uh, that we should do nothing, just sit down and be pessimists. But I advocate, as a Hegelian, this unpredictability and openness. You always have to take into account that what you plan to do will go terribly wrong. Revolutions have to fail, and so on, and so on. And I'm more and more approaching this, and that would be my, I don't know the details, I'll admit it, the critique of, of the book on participatory democracy. You know, because I have another Hegelian point here. Mm. How does he imagine that this will happen? First, I don't like people who make plans. Plans are excellent, but 
At one level, I hope we both, but which force will realize them? Marx had serious limitations, but he saw this correctly. And I think in a two idealist ways, Marx saw the agent in reality, working class, which will push towards this realization. Things went wrong. But today, that's why I, I, uh, I will say now something horrible, which horrified Chomsky and so on. That's why I not supported Trump, but said that Trump would have been better, you know. I want people who make appear, who brought to explosion the imminent antagonisms of the existing order. Maybe in a too naive way, I saw Trump as somebody who nonetheless ruined the, the, ruined the hegemonic consensus before him. Something new happened. It was horrible, I know. But I claim in this sense Trump is part of the same process as on the other extreme, but extreme is for me not a bad term, uh, Bernie Sanders and so on and so on. It is very important not to be afraid of this. Second thing, maybe it was too naive, my reading of COVID as giving us a chance. But isn't it clear, and it's becoming more and more clear, that COVID, although these demands are already neglected, turned into their opposite, but that COVID, for the first time through COVID, that's what fascinates me in the pandemic. Things that were, if you or me were to say them a year and a half ago, we would have been laughed off. <laughs> you are utopian socialist, you wanted communism in the United States. But let's see what even Trump had to do. Elements, I know how he cheated. Elements of universal basic income, elements of direct socialization in the sense okay, of state intervention in the economy. Uh, elements of, not so much Trump, but others, some kind of egalitarian solidarity and so on. I think that COVID brought out some kind of tendency which I risk to name communist. Now you will say, but things took even the opposite term. Like we know that the, the gap between wealthy and poor even exploded and so on. But I think this was basically a reaction to this threat. In the same way that, for me, I provoke now consciously, fascism was, cannot be understood without communism. Fascism was a reaction, as Walter Benjamin saw it nicely, to the threat of social revolution. I think the same holds for Trump. So again, here I am, not in classical Marxist sense, but nonetheless a Marxist. I don't think it is enough just to have a nice plan. Where do you see antagonisms, present forces, which push, push us into this direction? And I see today many tendencies from, uh, from global warming. Can you even imagine even uh, coping with global warming without some kind of international solidarity sense. Let's not just care about you for you, me for me. Let's work together. No. The point will approach where we will discover that it is in our own most egotist interest to cooperate. And that's the only solution. What I want to interject here is that when it comes to, uh, like, I'm good with the idea that we should plan for some sort of uh, economic world system that could go beyond um, capitalism. We should call it socialism. However, I'm also aware that what we'll be setting up will have its own internal contradictions, that what we will mm. not be exactly what we planned, um, and that we and that the key to uh, like socialism and, and mm. overcoming class society will be to have a, a political body of some form that can take in the contradictions and the changes and the things that go wrong and try again, that, that, that we're not, that we won't be, we will be naturalizing whatever planned uh, system that we've set up, but rather mm -hmm. opening up a space of, uh, of freedom. 
that that's the first thing I want to say. But the second thing go to but go to but yeah. Okay, so but 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 this isn't aimed at you. It's it, but I feel as though uh, with with Michael Albert and and Chomsky and many yeah. others that the what what you're talking about is the imminent critique of the current society uh, isn't present. Um, they they're not capable of somehow seeing uh, the dialectical relationship between the values that they hold dear and that they're fighting for and their opposite. Um, and <coughs> that's, if there's anything that I've, I've gotten out of reading your work, um, it's a, a appreciation of that, of, of, of that rela- dialectical relationship of the reversal. Um, yeah. And, uh, and what I'm wondering is what is it about seeing that reality, seeing the way um, uh, a, 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 a Say liberal modernity uh, on the one hand privileges individuals on the on the other hand wipes out uh, individual personalities um, and seeing the how those two things almost necessarily come together, why is that so difficult for a particular kind of radical today, and do you think that that difficulty uh, is the reason why they are they they dismiss your work? That the the block on on that kind of internal or imminent critique, that the, their inability to take up an in, imminent critique, is the the difficulty that you're you're facing when you try to communicate. Look here, I'm even more I'm horrified of this word uh, vulgar materialist. You say they cannot take it, but nonetheless, let's begin with this pessimist starting point, and nonetheless ask ourselves. How many of these utopian critical demands are now almost universally recognized, like in works, not in acts? We know now this scandal in European Union and so on, how they cannot cope, not even in vaccines. But the principle is established. Universal health care, everybody should be covered. The only way to beat the pandemic is through universal solidarity. Of course, the system Kids, but it kids with regard to the terms that the system itself has to recognize. For example, this. So again, when you say they don't uh, accept it, here I am again an elitist pessimist. I don't think there will be an era where everybody will read Hegel and they will understand niceness and so on and so on, but here I mean dialectical details. But nonetheless, it's incredible. Here I try to be a realist. It's incredible how many of these demands are part of the new, I mean, this. I use this term not in any ironic sense, but in a very positive sense, of a new, uh, let's call it political common sense. It's now more or less, not quite, but nonetheless, accepted that we need not only universal health care within nation states, but a more globalized approach, if you don't live in New Zealand, where they can isolate themselves and so on and so on. And also, ah, another thing that I... Sorry, let me go step by step. So... uh, uh, Nonetheless, I see here a tendency for the first time after long decades. The last epoch was classical well-state, especially European social democracy, where also equality, universal health care, universal free education, and so on, when were accepted. Now I see it's a unique example, again, of many of similar demands gaining in some sense, gaining gaining popularity. Even, and that's where my crazy reading enters, even in a totally uh, mystified way. Like, you know, I have some old radical leftist friends. You know what their reaction to intrusion into capital was? My God, that's what we should be doing. (laughs) The, The wrong guys did it, you know. I think that one should not just say, as the establishment liberalists, this is horrible, undermines our democracy. Not only, it also shows the vacuity and falsity of 
democracy. Don't just ask where Trump is mystifying things. Also ask how was a figure like Trump possible? What went wrong? In, and here I am uh, maybe a little bit critical. I don't want to go into details now, Chomsky and so on, but you know, uh, just him, but in this tendency of being obsessed with, how should I put it naively, how the system is cheating, lying, manipulating us, and so on. Here enters also my Hegelian aspect. I would say that those in power, in order to manipulate us, also have to manipulate themselves. What interests me more than Chomsky is not to prove how they lie, they manipulate. What interests me is how, in what trap, trap, sorry, not trap, in what trap they themselves are caught. It always fascinates me. For example, Trumpian protesters and so on, we know now the story. They were not these proverbial poor white people who are disappointed at capitalism and got, for wrong reasons, got into Trump's field. They have, in some sense, and in a very mystified sense, they have genuine concerns. What they are saying about how the system manipulates us and so on and so on is true, just with a mystified twist that they have. You see, this is what always, uh, what always fascinates me, to, to find this, uh, how should I call it, even emancipatory motive, even in the worst totalitarianisms, which is then radically mystified, and so on and so on, you know. Even, even in Stalinism you find this. I'm totally opposed to those systems. But here maybe is the difference that, as far as I see, with Chomsky you have an evil system which manipulates, manufactures consent, and so on and so on. I try to describe their own trap, as it were. How those who manipulate are manipulating themselves also. What interests me is not that they are cynical and manipulate us, but what interests me, interests me is in what they believe. That's like, for me the of ideology. Sorry. What you uh, are pointing to, I think, is the fact that there's an objective uh, system, system of relationships which dictates to even the ruling class, uh, not only like what kinds of policies are on the table, yeah. but also like, um, uh, the future, their own future failure. Like we, we, we have, uh, you know, problems presented to us that we can't solve within this current political social system. And that leads, uh, the political elites you know, to try various things, which are even from the start kind of known to be uh, failures. I wonder if I can get to Latour. I'm not sure if I, I've got a good segue. For yeah, this. I remember your question. Yes. Yeah. Um, it seems like we have to have um, an understanding of the dynamics of history uh, and, and that uh, this is very difficult to uh, get to, like to understand the relationship between our own ideas and the past is something that Latour is trying to, to uh, mm -hmm. write about when he wrote about um, the fair... Modernity well, doesn't exist and so on, yeah. Right, right, right. Um, like he was saying, oh, the tuberculosis didn't exist when the pharaoh died, therefore he couldn't have died of tuberculosis. And in fact, tuberculosis is a cultural product of this current moment, and we can't project it back into the past. We um, And so I'm wondering if we can uh, find... If we found a dynamic that produced that, that connected us to the past, to ancient Egypt, and into the into modernity, if we could see a logic of history, if then we would have a better way to make judgments about the past, without trying to naturalize as final our judgments. In other words, maybe tuberculosis yeah. isn't true. Maybe it is a fiction. Maybe it will be replaced by a, a more interesting, yeah. comprehensive, and and uh, yeah. Of disease later, but we can still say in this historical moment, based on the way history has yeah. worked out, that that the pharaoh died of tuberculosis. 
one of my fa most striking ones is one of the very few who actually is a scientist and knows something about science. Uh, Latour has a background in science and philosophy of science. Uh, they go through an article of his, and I think I'm remembering correctly, in which he, uh, he's, uh, somebody in France had, or somewhere, had discovered that uh, one of the pharaohs had died of tuberculosis. And they did it by, you know, analysis of whatever, DNA or something. Uh, Latour wrote an article ridiculing this because he said it's totally absurd. Because nobody because, had talked about it. Yeah, virus. tuberculosis was only discovered <laughs> in the 19th century, How could have, and everything's a social construction. And, and therefore it wasn't constructed it, yet. So, yeah, so it didn't happen. I mean, you know. Thing. Without a fear no, no, no. Here, here I, although I do appreciate Latour, for example, when he said very nicely, you know, this statement that I quoted widely, that uh, that the pandemic is just a dress rehearsal for the troubles to come uh, from global warming and so on. So it's not we control the pandemic through vaccines and then, oh, now the only debate is in this crazy with this crazy optimist in the date. Will it be already June or maybe September or at least the end of the year that life will be back to normal? It will not come ever. I claim we are entering a new era. But you know where I would in my I will try to explain it as uh, clearly as possible. It's uh, well, we have to go to more philosophical waters now, dialectical. <laughs> My, I reject this radical historicization of sciences, you know. Of course, it's easy to show there is no modern science uh, without uh, modern capitalism and so on and so on. But I don't think this relativizes it. So my enemy, under quotation marks, it's here Michel Foucault. I think with his use of the term, this did the most damage, I think, of truth effect, that every specific discourse has its own effect of truth, and that we cannot universalize it. What he means is science defines in its own terms what is true. True is a factual statement which can be confirmed through measurement, blah, 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 and so on. A mysticism, religious experience has its own measure of truth. Uh, uh, and common sense has its own measure, has its own measure of truth. For example, I think that at least from modern science, science and common sense split radically. And I think this reaches the climax with quantum physics. Already relativity theory contains propositions which simply cannot be translated back into our common sense notion of reality. But uh, what I'm saying is, I may sound almost a positivist here, is that not common sense, but modern science, nonetheless, to put it in my Lacanian terms, and here probably Chomsky would have opposed, touch the real in a much more hard way than even common sense does, and so on, and so on. When quantum physics makes all these absolutely counterintuitive propositions, you know, of uh, quantum oscillations, all that uh, retroactively even speculation which sounds like changing the past, and so on, and so on, you know what bothers so much? many ontological realists, is that it's a totally crazy theory. But as I read somewhere, even much more than Einstein's relativity theory, if there is a theory which triumphantly survived all the experimental tests, it's quantum physics. And I think it's not simply another discursive truth effect. It's more. You can see this precisely by its productivity. Sorry, it's not a truth ethic that you can produce atomic bomb and so on and all that stuff that we are doing now, quantum computers and so on and so on. I'm here an old-fashioned realist. I don't think you can simply historicize this. But now I'm coming to the point, very nice example that you mentioned. Tuberculosis, no tuberculosis in ancient Egypt. Because clearly, 
the designation tuberculosis is invented by modern medical science and so on and so on. Okay, what I would have added here is that it's not only that we should distinguish present from the past, but that our notion of the past is also always a historical product of our present. How does Latour know what the ancient Egyptians would have thought? Because he has a certain notion of pre-modern tradition, which is, I think, strictly mediated by the notion of modernity. You know the quote that I always repeat from T.S. Eliot, Eliot, I love it, intelligent conservatives, who said that every true new work of art doesn't only introduce a break with the past, but in some sense, not in reality, but in our symbolic space, it changes the past. So I think that both a Foucauldian answer is for me too naively historicist. To say today we speak of tuberculosis in ancient Egypt, I don't know what. They would have thought, I'm speculating, about evil demons, uh, divine punishment, whatever. I don't know. But uh, I think that this image of the past is always mediated through the present. This is why I'm here more radical, because... Uh, Okay, I cannot, don't, we don't have time now to develop the entire line, but maybe we like this idea. You know that when we speak about uh, rape, feminism, and so on, now I will show it may surprise you my politically correct part, you know. <laughs> you know, many, not even conservatives, but uh, like, again, historicist liberals would have said that... Uh, like a category, okay, I will apply Latour to what you quoted from Latour to another level, rape. I agree that what counts today, not only, I agree with this notion, so it's not only some politically correct madness, but common sense, it's a good common sense today. So what counts today as rape implies that if we, use this notion in analyzing the past that I don't know what you have, would have said. I would say about 95, at least, sorry for vulgar speculation, cases of heterosexual acts till 20th century, don't you agree, would have probably counted as rape by today's You know, possible, yes. Okay, now am I saying, oh, we should be historicists? No. I believe in eternity of ideas here. We have the right to apply it to the, to the past. There is more, because, not because we know better what was in the past than they did, but because, uh, uh, but uh, I will try to be as precise here as, as possible, because it's part of today's of experience of our present, what we consider as ethically acceptable, that we view the past also with these notions. You cannot say, yes, today this is brutal colonialism, but the founding father of the other colonizers, it was a different horizon. They thought it's uh, bringing freedom to the savages and so on and so on. You know, this is, you can excuse almost everything in these terms. So I try to think together this paradox. Yes, it's clear that, again, uh, 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 tuberculosis, or what did you, the, the uh, Latour's example, or let's say the notion of rape, of sexual oppression, is something that emerged in a specific historical situation. But it throws a new light, it changes the past. Otherwise, the position of neutrality is a false one. The position which say, yes, today it's for us rape. These acts uh, 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 count as rape, but in the 17th century they would not count as rape, and who knows how it will be in the future, and so on and so on. No, here I am... I think, again, that uh, 
Again, every epoch reconstructs its own past. And what I condemn his, for example, let's take Michel Foucault himself. I think that although they are wonderful readable books, you know, his, this, uh, 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 late works on fashioning the self, uh, inventing uh, pleasures, and so on and so on. I don't know if it's true historically or not, but it's so clearly the image of patient Greece and Rome mediated by our today's experience. So, again, my answer is here paradoxically. I'm at the same time more historicist. What I find problematic in what you uh, quoted from uh, uh, from Latour is, okay, today it's tuberculosis, we don't know what is for ancient uh, uh, Egyptians. Where does he stand? He presupposes that he's somewhere out of history where he can compare the present and the past. I think this position from where you look at the past is always overdetermined by our uh, by our uh, modernity, and that's even my big question in my friendly but nonetheless polemics with Judith Butler. You know that I always, when we met sometimes years ago, I always ask her a simple question. And can you maybe no, you are not now changing into Judith Butler for me, but can you answer me this simple? Sorry, I will stop. So, no, no, go ahead. No, no. Naive question. When he describes in her mega hit, uh, we, are, we are both unlucky, me and Judith, that we wrote somewhere in the late 80s the big hit, Gender Trouble, Sublime Object, you know, of ideology. You know, we are trying to catch Judith. Okay. Uh, this idea that uh, uh, sexual identity is not biologically or however ideally fixed, but is the result of contingent, uh, contingent discursive construction and so on and so on. I ask her, what is the status of this very thesis of her? Is this a universal statement? So that we can say that already the cavemen, Unknowingly, when they raped their women or whatever, they were discursively constructing their identity, you know. Or is this nonetheless at the same time something which emerged in our, specifically emerged and could have emerged only in our time? My position is it's both at the same time. Because yeah. to, say to say sex is a discursive contract is something that holds only for our time, and then you describe the past as essentialist, primitive, it's already a notion of the past possible only from our present. So you see, my, I don't have time to explain, that my position is here pretty paradoxical. At the same time, I'm more historicist, but in this way I try to overcome historicism, but again, at the same time, just to finish, uh, because I've now written a new text on it, uh, you know, uh, Lacan is not discourse theorist in the sense that truth is just a truth effect. In certain, so that every discursive practice has its own, its own procedures, strategies that construct its own specific truth notion. For Lacan, truth is not an effect, but as Lacan says directly in his key writing, Science uh, et la Verité, science and truth. Truth is a cause in psychoanalysis, not in positive science. That's a big difference. For positive science, you have positive knowledge. How this knowledge is subjectively mediated is by definition irrelevant. Science erases it. The definition of science is anyone who reproduces this Experiment will do it. It doesn't matter where do you stand. Where I remain part of European philosophical continental legacy is that I think that there is a dimension of truth, subjective, but not subjectivist. It's socially subjective truth, which cannot be reduced to positive knowledge. My eternal example, just to remind your uh, our listeners, is that wonderful example of uh, of uh, of Lacan, you know, 
Let's say I'm a male chauvinist man and suspect my wife of cheating me sleeping with other men. Even if my accusations are true, accusations, she's really doing it, my jealousy is still a lie. And I apply the same to anti-Semitism. You cannot find anti-Semitism on the level of facts. What? You try to prove that Jews really didn't explain Germans and so on and so on. No, you can... You see, here I would like to expose my notion of truth and knowledge. Don't you agree, it's horrible what I will say, that although most of the facts about uh, Jews exploiting Germans were obviously false, facts claimed by but nonetheless, I can imagine writing a book on Jewish influence in German public life in 1930, where all the facts will be true. It's true. Jews were. Half of the lawyers were Jews. 60% of art critics and blah, blah. But nonetheless, although it's factually true, in a subjective sense, it's a lie. I want to say one step, go back one step and say what you would tell Judith Butler about um, gender identity being a, a construct. Um, Marx would tell the world about class and and. What he would say is that only after capitalism can we see that all of history has been the history of Yeah, yeah. Because I, it's wonderful what you say. That's my point. Marx says two things here. He says everybody knows this in Communist Manifesto, the all hitherto history is history of class struggle. But at the same time, he says, I think also there, I may be wrong, that Capitalists is the first true class in history. Before capitalism, you had classes, but masked as estates and so on and so on. Another example where one should agree with Latour but go further is the notion of profession. Profession, as uh, uh, Max Weber demonstrated, it's a modern notion. Profession implies a certain... Uh, choice of a free Cartesian subjectively. You are not born into your profession. You can choose your profession. But it doesn't hold for previous eras. What I mean is, is that it would be ridiculous if you met a guy from medieval society and ask him, what's your profession? And he would say, my profession is being a knight or whatever. It's nonsense. So in this sense, in this sense, you know, I try to be here more radically historicist. Back to Judith Butler, I I think that her notion of what she, she sorry, dismisses as fundamentalism and so on and so on is not simply uh, wrong, but it's also already mediated by our own contemporary experience. But uh, uh, it's very important what you said, because nonetheless, even here, I'm not just a radical historicist. Here comes my Lacanian aspect. For Marx, class struggle is not simply a historical phenomenon, but is a kind of underlying antagonism which traverses all the history so that different epochs of history are different ways to deal with this antagonism. And here is maybe, from my standpoint, the big difference between me and Judith. I agree with her that all positive identities, gender identities, are constructs. But I don't think that this is a pure field of contingency. They are constructs by means of which we try to deal with domesticate, gentrify a certain basic antagonism which defines sexuality. And this this basic antagonism is not sexual difference in this sense of different gender identities and so on and so on, which is why I'm proud of this speculative moment. When I write about LGBT+, I say that the notion of antagonism is not a binary one. It precisely means antagonism is something that cannot ever be fully translated into a clear symbolic opposition, like men active, uh, women passive, whatever. These are all constructs. So what I would say is that empirically, what Lacan says, there is no sexual relationship, means precisely that, again, 
at the phenomenon level, there are never just men and women. There are men and women and their difference, which is in a model way embodied in LGBT+. For me, uh, 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 transgender people are not beyond difference. They are difference at its purest. Mm-hmm. Antagonism breaks out. So things are here more, more complex. Sorry. I have, I have an inner Noam Chomsky in my head or inner Michael Albert, yeah. and I, I just know... That, Wait a minute. Uh, when we, the people, take power, you will explain all this in Gulag about uh, your inner... <laughs> yeah. Sorry, go on, please. No, but yeah. I'm sure that, that uh, at this point in the conversation, which we yeah. should be wrapping up, that Michael Albert is just shaking his head going... I don't know, but I'm going to make every effort to to uh, edit this together and and make it as clear as possible. But I agree. I, I think I, I see. Uh, uh, I mean, I still see quite quite a lot of value in everything you said here, and and I think go that, to but go to but. No, but but okay. Here's my but. But I wish you had said um, at the start that this antagonism is uh, what the uh, the radical liberal anarchists are avoiding because i think that th- this is the key to um yeah. the, the yeah. radical liberal position which is that they they act as though there is a field of values that if we were simply not evil people we would hold on to and we could create a better world without having to shift where the antagonism is in the world without having to hold on to the reality of that antagonism um, on some fundamental yeah, social... But, you know, can I ask you a question to, to conclude? Because this really interests me, sincerely, not as a joke. Listen, when you said that my symbolic opponent, whom I appreciate very much, not Chomsky, Albert Rudyard, that he would have said that he has this vision of participatory democracy and so on and so on. A very naive question, sincere, not even critical directly. What does he imagine? How could this new society emerge? Does, will we win elections, the anarchists? Will, what will happen? Because you know what's so interesting? Many friends of mine, anarchists, other radicals, they claim we need a crisis. We need a global shattering crisis. And I will not name them. Two and three very well known even told me maybe a large ecological or nuclear catastrophe will help us. It's our only chance. And then one or two of them even said, maybe we should discreetly organize it. You know, this <laughs> a very sad statement, you know. Because so, so how does Albert, that guy, how does he imagine that this will happen? I think he believes that through activism, and, uh, yeah, but how? How? Well, look. Um, uh, I, I, okay, you get a ground movement. Will it? How will it? It's it's a problem. You know, it's a problem. And that's why I celebrate the pandemic. Not, I'm not a perfect. I don't like people dying. I pray to God that the vaccine will work. But you know, you need people shattered. You know, things. To, you need things to start to move. And again, for me, in spite of all the manipulations, you know, now, my God, this is also the result of Trump and last year's that now, you know what a revolution this is. Now in the United States, after decades, for the first time, it's legitimate to say publicly, I'm a socialist. You are not excluded to some margin. This is, for me, gradual progress at its best. Well, I don't know well, if I, I agree don't know that I think you're too optimistic, but but um, I, I this is a fact. Now I will play Chomsky to you. This is a fact. You can be Bernie Sanders, whatever he is, marginalized. He's not excluded. You can be. Is he not excluded, or did we just de facto? Watch? He is, of course, he is. But nonetheless, he's part of the space. I imagine from my youth when. The word in the United States, the word socialism was totally prohibited. Mm. I mean, yeah, in the yeah. United States I, and I, so I, on, I, you know. I live in Portland, Oregon, so my view of the world is very mm. warped. Like, I, as a Marxist, and probably the mm. most conservative pe- person 
amongst my peer group, you know, like because yeah. uh, I didn't yeah. burn down the library or something. But um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but yes, no, you're right. It is true that now in American politics for the first time, there's a glimmer of a hope. A glimmer. It's a small glimmer. Yes. But I think it's. A no, little, I'm I just that, saying. Yeah, I'm not going to support that. I think Biden is triumphant. Okay, I think Biden defeated Sanders. Biden is triumphant. The liberal neoliberal order may have to change, but it won't change into socialism uh, unless. Uh, and and a lot of the left has been absorbed into the Democratic Party. <laughs> yeah, but I, I what I think is that. Uh, not give peace a chance, but give time a chance. There will be new crises and so on. I think we should be more radical, what you call democratic socialist, and just, you know, war, this will happen, and so on, and so on. It's not a bright future, but, you know, uh, like, uh, I still, in a naive way, believe that there are more and more times that the system, as we know it, cannot reproduce itself endlessly. That's why we had Trump. He saw it. Trump is a reaction to this threat. That's why, as I wrote, maybe you read it in the last issue of uh, 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 Spectator US. It's typical how only moderate conservatives like to publish me today. You know, this uh, Wall Street bets and all that. You know, this is... This is, for me, a mega, a mega ominous symptom for those in power. Because it's not external Mexican workers or nature causing catastrophes, resisting. It's that something very weird exploded from the heart of the system itself. It will not ruin the system. I'm not dreaming about this. But what I'm saying is that what was clearly shown was the imminent uh, limitation of the system. Because as I've written there, uh, uh, they even have a nice dream, uh, Wall Street uh, uh, bets and so on. Their dream is that of truly, truly popular capitalism. The dream is not just the elite on Wall Street, but all of us. The dream is this one. We all work somewhere, normally through the day. In the evening, instead of having sex or drinking with friends, we play half an hour, you know. It's a nice dream, but it's structurally impossible, and it points towards a limitation of the system. I think crises are ahead. Listen, I want to wrap up up our conversation with a personal question, if I can. How are you, how are you, uh, how's your writing career going? Are you really, have you really been relegated to only publishing in right-wing spaces or no. going on no. I, I must say that I got some hints now that, because many people reproach to me this, you are Putin's uh, Putin supporter, the public in Russia today, it's over. It looks, yeah. it looks that I'm also out of that space now. Excluded, you know. So it's just a very Tragic. This liberal left, for reasons that you enumerated, don't like me. Real conservatives, my name cannot even be prohibited. Uh, sorry, ca- cannot even be mentioned. It's totally prohibited. But it doesn't disturb me. I mean, like, even if you are a lone voice, you have to tell the truth. In the long term, it works, I think. 